This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You are the leader in the courtroom, and you want the jury to be looking to you for the answers. When you figure out your theory, never deviate. You want the facts to be consistent, complete, incredible. The defense has no problem running out the clock. Delay is the friend of the defense. It's tough to grow a firm by trying to hold on and micromanage. You've got to front load a simple structure for jurors to be able to hold on to. What types of creative things can we do as lawyers, even though we don't have a trial setting? Whatever you've got to do to make it real, you've got to do to make it real. But the person who needs convincing is you. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation. Your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we have a fantastic lawyer uh, who practices mainly in Albuquerque and Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, Dina Buchanan. Dina, how are you doing today? I'm great, Michael. How are you doing today? I am wonderful. And before I get into uh, what all we're going to talk about, I just want to say thank you and give a shout out to Law Pods. Uh, Law Pods produces our podcast. They make it so easy for me because all I have to do, Dina, is talk to people like you and they record it and they edit it and they make the social media clips that we put out and all the graphics and everything else for me and make my life really easy. So if uh, any of you all want to do your own podcast, which I highly recommend, I really recommend Law Pods. Dina, uh, one of the reasons I asked you to be on there, not just because you're a great lawyer and you're a fun person, but you also have a background before you did plaintiff's work of working with excess insurance companies. And just talking to you, I've learned so much about, you know, what goes on on the other side and how cases are valued and probably how much money I probably left on the table in my career by not knowing how this worked. And it was just fascinating. So I wanted to get you on the podcast for two reasons. One, I thought the listeners would get, should know this too, but two, I wanted to learn more. Uh, every time I talk to you, I want to learn more and more. And so welcome. Thanks. I, I'm so excited to be here. I used to, I listened to your podcast ever since I opened my firm in, uh, a couple of years ago. Oh, wow. So you've given me a lot of nuggets too. Well, good. Rising tide lifts all boats, right? <laughs> exactly. So let's let's start by talking before we get into the meat of this, the meat of the matter. Let's talk a little bit about your background. So you weren't always a plaintiff lawyer. How did you get started? So I uh, started in big law actually a long time ago and uh, practiced in Albuquerque and then in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania for uh, eight years there, both in big law and a Fortune 500 in-house counsel. And then I uh, came back to New Mexico and I worked largely on the insurance defense side and ultimately representing um, big insurance companies handling excess cases where what an excess case is, is you, know, you have a primary layer of coverage and then uh, some companies have other layers of coverage beyond that. And the, uh, the layers above that are called excess coverage. And those insurance companies would hire a law firm sometimes to parachute in within months or weeks of trial to learn the case, try to address any issues, get it ready, and potentially try it, taking it away from the primary attorneys a lot of times. That actually had to be kind of fun just to be able to just jump in there and... It was five years of very high adrenaline. I bet. <laughs> Let me tell you that. <laughs> so why would an excess carrier want to get their own lawyers if the primary carrier already hired a lawyer? 
so a lot of law firms really have relationships with the primary carriers, and those are the most common carriers you see. So a lot of law firms are set up to handle those cases that are valued up to about a million dollars. Most primary coverage expires at the, at least in trucking, if we talk about trucking or a big commercial, they expire about a million or $2 million is about where that limit is. And so a lot of work can be handled by those, those companies, those law firms, and they can get summary judgment sometimes, they can dispose of cases, they can cheaply settle them. Insurance companies look for a certain kind of profile in those those firms. They also tend to pay a lower hourly rate for whatever reason. I'm not sure why, but for excess counsel, they want to hire specialty attorneys who are really experienced in trying bigger cases and handling more complex litigation, usually with a higher exposure, because the difference between cases that get handled and settled for under a million dollars and then the cases that may have up to 100 million or more in exposure, it's very different. The stakes are higher. And so what I saw was these insurance companies would put together these small panels of excess counsel that go to law firms that they felt, if this is a high stakes trial, this is who I want to represent this defendant. And there's nothing against primary counsel. A lot of times we would work alongside them, but our firm had some incredible trial attorneys who had had really good success. And so they led our team. And those are people that really had the confidence of those excess carriers with that higher exposure. So before I get further into this, just one thing that always I get asked a lot is how do you know when there is excess coverage? That can be tricky. So you need to ask in discovery early and often about the coverage. We see there's some tricks and tips about this. A lot of times people ask a very simple interrogatory and a very simple request for production saying, please provide all available insurance that could cover this accident. You think that's a simple question and get a simple, complete answer. But what you often get and this is usually you know, primary counsel answering these things, is that they're talking about their layer. They're going to say, this is what we think is available to cover this claim based on the facts of this case. And when you see language like that, and you just see one policy offered, you need to think again, because what that is, is the a defense attorney saying, well, in my opinion, your case isn't worth more than our primary level. So I don't feel like I need to tell you about the other layers because that's not relevant. It's not likely to lead to the discovery of of relevant evidence. And so that's their judgment call, but that's not their obligation under the discovery rule. So you really need to push back. And what I do in my request is I say, regardless of counsel's evaluation of the exposure in this case, we want to know all coverage that could ever be available to to address a verdict or judgment of any amount in this case. And so if you raise your questions more broadly like that, then when you go to the judge, you only get one and you you have some sense, this is a big company. Why do they only have $750,000 in coverage? You can talk to the judge very honestly and say, we want an affidavit saying that there's no other coverage. We want certification that there's no other coverage and really put them on the spot and push back because then you've got a broad enough question that hopefully the judge will, will back you up on. The other thing that you do when you get pushback like that is you depose the risk manager 
as one of your 30B6 topics, either as a 30B6 topic and or depose the risk manager for the company. A lot of corporations have what they call a risk manager, a director of risk management, vice president of risk management. There's lots of potential terms for the titles for that role. But that's the person for the company that is responsible for purchasing insurance and managing the risk of the company. That's the person that holds, their whole job is, includes things like purchasing insurance, evaluating how much insurance that the company needs, what kinds of insurance, what lines of coverage. They will work with the brokers, they'll do the applications, they'll do certifications, they'll know about all aspects of the coverage. And these people really know insurance. They have other duties too. Sometimes they're also responsible for safety, safety policies, various parts of compliance, but a huge part of their job is insurance. So if you have them in a deposition, it's really hard for them not to answer that question of what other policies are available above this. And, and you can get lots of other good nuggets too. So definitely make that a part of either 30B6 or just a separate deposition if you feel like there's really a lot more that you can get from the risk manager. And this is a deposition that's not often taken but can produce gold for a plaintiff, especially with a big company. Uh, because these people have statistics about safety records. They have statistics about their ratings and their experience with insurance, the claims that have been filed, the claims that have been paid, because they're responsible for then going to the next carrier, the next round and renewing. So you can get a lot of information about corporate practices from the risk manager. I found that I think oftentimes defense counsel don't even ask their client. They just ask the adjuster to send me the policy. And because mm -hmm. I, I don't know how many cases I've had that actually came really close to settling for the limits of the primary policy. And then when we asked for an affidavit, that there's no other coverage suddenly, yes. Oh no, there's another, are we are at mediation and some, and the adjuster tells the counsel the first time, Oh, by the way, there is an excess policy here. Uh, since you know, we made it man for all coverage available. Yeah, I could show you email chains with uh, lawyers where I'm pushing and asking multiple different ways, and then suddenly I come up with five more policies. Yeah, it's crazy. So if you have a big case, don't just assume there's only the the million dollars there. Now, if you see like a $50,000, $100,000 policy, there's probably not another one on top of it, I would think. You know, in a car case or a small commercial case, but if you're talking a trucking case, you got they need to at least have the 750. Right. And then potentially more. And, and one way that I judge that in kind of just a down and dirty way is I look and see how many vehicles do they have? You know, I look on the safer yeah. website and I see how big is this company? If they've got two trucks and they say they only have 750, I probably will accept that with an affidavit. But if there's a thousand or a couple thousand tractors or trailers or many thousands, then you push till you get the tower. Yeah, there's no way. What is, you said tower, what is a tower? So a tower of insurance is, if you think about the primary layer as the first million or two million, and then each layer on top of that stacks. So uh, each policy, on, say you have one from uh, up to $2 million, and then you have a layer of insurance that will cover from 2 million to 10 million. And then you might have one from 10 million to 20 million. We call that whole thing from top to bottom the tower. 
And how do you find out in the tower what is the order in which those policies pay? Because I've sometimes like been reading and reading and reading and trying to figure out, okay, I mean, do I have one, two, and five, or one, five, and two? Or, you know, what is the order? Because it can make a big difference in how I formulate my demand. You want to closely look at the whole policy, including any addendums, because typically there's a a writer or an addendum that will define when that coverage kicks in. And so it's usually at the very back of the policy, there's a form that will say that this starts when, and it'll refer to the underlying layer coverage policy is exhausted. And it'll say this policy is excess to and it'll identify the policy below it. So what you want to do is get all that paperwork and you want to line it up and just, I just take a piece of notebook paper and I just create my chart. And that's how I figure out how much coverage there is. Great. Do you ever send subpoenas to the insurance broker or agent to see if they, they did anything else? Like procured any other coverage? Yeah. It, another uh, great option if you the risk management thing doesn't work out uh, and you're getting resistance is subpoena the broker, because if the defendant won't tell you and you're in a big, long motion to compel fight, and here motions to compel can be pending your courts for a very long time. Unlike some jurisdictions, you can't set your motion hearing date when you file a motion. So you just have to wait sometimes months. So you can just go ahead and send a subpoena to the broker who got the original application and potentially procured the coverage for the defendant. And along with that, you want to subpoena the applications. And you want to subpoena the underwriting file if you can, because there's a whole lot of information that could be helpful toward punitive damages in those files. What kind of information would be in the insurance application? Because, you know, we can't talk about insurance in most cases. So what kind of information would be available in there uh, that would be able to lead to admissible evidence that would help us in punitive cases? There usually is the risk management person for the company is providing to the broker information about their safety history, including other accidents, other claims. And sometimes primary counsel, for whatever reason, they don't have the information. They haven't talked to the the people to give them that information. They'll say there's no other accidents like this, but the risk manager disclosed one to get coverage. So that can give you good impeachment evidence, but it also can give you information about similar accidents that may have happened. And so how about when they just want to give you the the deck sheet and say that's enough? Is that good enough or do you need to get the whole policy? You need the whole policy, including all amendments and all riders, because there are conditions to when insurance applies and there is exclusions to coverage that you need to know about. If you have an excess policy that excludes intentional torts. And one of the things that you have pled is an intentional tort. You may have a reservation of rights letter at minimum addressing that claim. And you need to know about that before you push forward. It actually can help you shape how you plead your case or what claims to continue to press forward to make sure you have coverage. Because the last thing you want to do is plead or litigate yourself out of coverage. I agree. Sometimes you can also use if you have some claims that are covered and some that aren't, or if you have related defendants and you have some entities that are covered and some that aren't, you can use that interplay mm-hmm. uh, to put pressure. Because I had one case where the subsidiary company was covered for some claims, but then the parent company was not because of a pretty broad exclusion. The subsidiary company had a workers' comp exclusion for compensatory, but in Texas, in a death, if you can prove gross negligence, you can get punitive damages against an employer. And then they had an excess policy that would cover that. But the 
excess policy for the compens for any other kind of claim other than a workers' comp related claim against an employer excluded any claim brought by any employee of any insured. And so the parent company did not have that. And we were really able to, we still made a case against the parent company, but that wouldn't have been insured. And so they not only helped fund the settlement, but they put a lot of pressure on the mm -hmm. carrier to settle the covered claim. Yeah. You always want to find, as we talked about last time we talked about this, you want to find the pressure points and you want to put pressure on those points um, to get your case into a settlement posture. If you're thinking about settlement, I mean, obviously if you're getting ready for trial, it's a great case, then it's not uh, something you need to worry about. Well, we say that, but you know, that's, uh, you know, our goal may be to try their great cases, but you know, our clients have some say so too. It's their case, not ours. <laughs> I at least want them to have a difficult decision to make. I, I wanted to have a, a good offer on the table so that they they can decide whether to take it or not. I'd hate for, you know, I didn't do my job right, so they had to go to trial when maybe they wouldn't have, because again, trials are fun for lawyers, they're not so fun for clients. So one thing, you know, I've never, I've, I worked in big law too, but we didn't do insurance work. And so I've never been behind the scenes to see how insurance companies set the value of a claim. I used to always get so mad at an adjuster thinking the adjuster or the lawyer on their side was picking the value. How is it that they set value? At least with the, I guess we'll say pri any commercial policy. So the, the lawyer, whether it's the primary attorney or the excess attorney, uh, needs to report to the insurance company on a regular basis. Most insurance companies look for a quarterly report, some monthly. So there's going to be a basically a big old letter memo that's being sent to the insurance adjuster that's getting loaded into their system and rated for base, lots of different things, such as the quality of witnesses, the number of witnesses, the kinds of experts, the, the um, effectiveness of the experts, the medical bills, the the plaintiff's current situation, if they if they haven't um, passed away as a result of the accident, if there is a wrongful death claim, they're going to look at the likability and the number of beneficiaries that are going to be potentially testifying at a trial. And so all of those things um, go into the mix. And um, another thing that's weighed is how aggressively is the plaintiff's attorney pushing the case? Are they doing discovery or have they just filed a complaint and they just sit on the complaint for months? Are they asking for depositions right away? Whose depositions are they asking for? What is in their 30B6 notice? What are we worried about coming out that we know about that they don't know about yet? So a lot of that stuff goes into the letter and the, the letter is sent to the adjuster. The adjuster generally has a certain amount of um, coverage that they're allowed to use to settle a case or to fund the litigation of the case, both. Beyond that, if you're getting into a huge case, you, there's usually a committee, there's a roundtable that's going to happen with their superiors that other people within the insurance company need to sign off before that adjuster has additional authority. So if you are a mediation, for example, and somebody gets back to you and says, there's no more authority, it doesn't mean that there's obviously there's not no more coverage and they can get more authority. But usually adjusters only have a certain amount that they can spend without getting somebody else's permission and sign off. And sometimes it's multiple people up the chain, up to maybe, you know, VP level. Do you think they ever go to mediation and just they test people to see if they'll settle for less? A hundred percent. Yeah. So the amounts that I was allowed to settle cases for at the first mediation were 
a lot less than we would be talking about at a second mediation or even uh, getting close to trial. And sometimes that didn't happen. Um, sometimes it was, well, plaintiff's counsel really hasn't developed anything more to impress us or scare us. And so we're not going to really change our valuation of the case. But there were a lot of times that especially with that first offer, when you get that first kick in the gut offer of, you know, $5,000 on a wrongful death case, that is not usually anything related to what authority will eventually be offered to you. Uh, but it's a test to see yeah, how you I react. I found that often, you know, on big money cases, you know, we get our, we get a lot of our average cases settled either at the first mediation or after the first mediation or at a second mediation, you know, but without having to go all the way, but I'm finding to get big, big money. It's the Friday before trial, the weekend before trial, after jury selection, yep. after a week of trial, they just seem to either test us or maybe I just don't do a good enough job of impressing them before then. I don't know. Oh, I, I think it varies on the insurance company and the adjuster and the team that works your region and, and all kinds of things. And, and there are different teams assigned to different kinds of cases and different teams assigned to different regions. And so um, you might have a different team working on in different parts of Texas. So you might get different responses. Now, I guess one, it seems to me, problem we can have if we have a case that our client would like to get settled, or at least we want to give the client you know, the best possible offer so the client can have a real decision to make is, it seems like we're dependent then mm -hmm. on the defense lawyer getting it, being competent, reporting right. And sometimes they're just such, I think there's either such true believers in their case, they get fixated on something and they don't put everything else in, or some of them just are overworked and they don't think they put the work in to really look at the case and see everything that's going on. Or they have, they're too busy to talk to their under their associates that did mm -hmm. the depots and they don't realize how badly it went. Is there anything you can do as a plaintiff's lawyer to make sure that that information makes it to the adjusters? Sure. First of all, the, the defense lawyer, just so everybody knows, I don't think I was clear about this, but the defense lawyer usually is not recommending a settlement range. A lot of insurance what? companies have, <laughs> they, they don't let their lawyers talk about money in terms of, we think it should settle for this because that creates potential bad faith exposure for the carrier. And so carriers have moved away on the big cases anyway, from uh, evaluations from their attorneys. So don't blame the defense lawyer necessarily if you are thinking that your case is a $5 million case and you're not getting that um, from them. Now, a defense lawyer can certainly influence the amount of settlement and they can, um, they will have a conversation when there's offers and demands and things like that. But it is really not, they're not usually the ones that are saying no. So then the other question you asked is, how do you, can, how do you deal with, you've got a true believer defense lawyer, they're not reporting, they don't seem afraid enough based on your evaluation of the facts and what you think could happen at trial because you're just not getting any traction in your discussions. Yeah. Like until someone goes and gets their teeth kicked in, they don't really know that it's possible. You know, if you've only been handling things within your, you know, within your layer, mm -hmm. basically, if you've never been hit for over a million dollars, you've never settled a case for over a million dollars Yeah, and everyone's always taking your limits. You don't, you don't realize it's really possible for this to happen. Uh, you just don't take it that seriously. Or they just get fixated on one little, sometimes something's even inadmissible. They'll find like one little thing on the plaintiff and like, 
no, this I'm going to win this case. And they just don't seem yeah. to, they filter everything else out. Like uh, cannabis metabolites. Have you heard <laughs> about that a lot of times from primary counsel? Oh, there are cannabinoid metabolites in their, in their system. And I say, okay, well, what does your toxicologist say was the level of impairment based on that amount of metabolites? And they'll say, oh, we haven't been able to find an expert to tell us that because they won't commit to yeah. that because there's no evidence of actual impairment. And I say, okay, so how, why is that a big, scary thing? And so sometimes cases get tied up with primary counsel and they don't get to excess counsel because primary counsel is fixated on whatever fact it is that they don't really even push to report up to the excess layer. So what you want to do is you want to ask for the name of the adjuster that is handling every layer of coverage. They say, if you've got a case, you say you want the adjuster's names for the first 20 million in coverage or 50 million in coverage or whatever you think that might be a verdict range for you. And then you want to send your demand letter that's incredibly detailed and well-reasoned. This is not just the, hey, pay me policy limits. This is analyzing deposition testimony, analyzing admissions that come out in your case. Hey, we have this smoking gun document that everyone's going to agree to. And we have all these other accidents that are just like this in this area. And hey, there's these other verdicts on this fact pattern. And so you want to send that to each of those adjusters and you really want to get in contact as much as you can with the adjuster for the top layer of coverage or the layer just above where you think your target is because they want to protect their layer. Their job is to not have a case come into their layer and invoke their coverage. So say the target is just for fun. We'll say the target, you think you can get $45 million. You want to really make friends with the adjuster at the $50 million level, and you want to start talking to them and have them write letters saying, hey, you've got an opportunity to settle this within your layer. Don't expose us because we're suing you. If you expose us because of bad faith and you know that this case is worth that much money night and day, you better settle it because there's going to be litigation. And I will tell you that I am very aware of cases that there were big verdicts in them there was an opportunity to settle at a much lower la layer, and those carriers are in deep litigation in federal court between each other about you know who did what to whom. So it, it is a way to exert some pressure, and that's a more sophisticated kind of higher level tactic. And they might give you some resistance about giving you the adjusters' names, but you can also ask, well, who's excess counsel for that layer? And you can at least talk to excess counsel, and they have an obligation to give it to their client. What if they won't tell you? Are there any other ways to figure out who the adjusters are uh, for the other layers if the defense counsel won't tell you? It is kind of tough. I think you have to you have to get that information from defense counsel. You can ask for rights of reservation letters. That's often a way to find the name. Uh, and usually on these bigger cases with multiple layers, there is a right of a reservation rights uh, letter. So whoever's the adjuster that sent that, then you might be able to find it that way. But uh, the other thing you can do is get the names of who all is attending the mediation from the mediator. And uh, a lot of mediators will provide you. I mean, you have to know who's in the room. So if excess is there and you insist, by the way, on excess being there, right. you do not have a mediation. If your case is legitimately something worth a lot of money 
you do not proceed in a mediation with only the primary attorney and the primary adjuster because that primary adjuster has no ability to settle above their limits in most cases. They're usually not even at the same company as the other layers. So um, you, you want to have everybody who needs to be there and make decisions in the room. And then, you know, that's a good place to start for uh, building that relationship with the adjuster. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us by calling 210-941-1301 to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. And now, back to the show. And just any tips for how to talk to these people? I'm always more comfortable talking to lawyers than I'm adjusters for some reason. I don't know why. A lot of adjusters are lawyers. Um, so there's always that. And, you know, you can call them and, and just honestly, be, I would suggest don't be cute. Don't be a bully. Don't be obnoxious. Be just straight up and just have a conversation with the adjuster. I think that, you know, adjusters have heard it all. Don't think that your case is special and unusual to the adjuster, that this is what they do every day. And especially at the excess layers, they deal with catastrophic cases all, their whole their whole job is catastrophic cases around the country. So don't think that when you call them that you're going to be particularly scary or particularly uh, intimidating or anything else. Really what you want to have is a full and frank discussion. Hey, I've got this case. I just don't think that it, that various adjusters and attorneys are looking at this the way we're seeing it. Can I talk to you a little bit about this? Can I send you some information? And honestly, that kind of approach is probably going to get you a heck of a lot more traction because realize that these adjusters are evaluating you as a lawyer in that conversation. So if you come across as a jerk, they're going to think that the jury is going to see you as a jerk and they're going to kind of write you off. But if you come across as a real person who just is a good communicator, you're very well prepared, you really know your stuff, you really know this case, it might change things for you. Something as you had mentioned earlier that there are, you know, there's things they look at as far as what we're doing as plaintiff lawyers mm-hmm. when there's valuing the case and deciding, you know, frankly, whether they're scared of scared of us or not, mm-hmm. uh, or scared of the way we're working up the case or not. What are the things that we can do to let them know that we're serious, that to drive up the value in their mind? So I um, serve discovery with my complaint. In my jurisdiction, there's not a waiting period. So even if we don't serve it with the complaint, we, we try to serve it soon uh, after we file. We also continue to push on discovery with motions to compel. We don't just accept their answers, especially when there's some boilerplate objections. We push, we file motions, we do good faith letters. We also, we notice depositions early. We give a 30B6 notice. That's usually the first deposition I try to take is the 30B6. Uh, p- different people have different ideas about that, but I really like it because you can get a lot of information that then you can take and talk to with the other specific witnesses responsible for those parts, you know, functions within a company. The other thing I do is sometimes I'll take the driver first, but I I really do like to take the 30B6 early. And if they see that you're taking action on your case about, you know, at least once a month is is my goal, is something is happening in that case certainly at least once a quarter, 
there's got to be something for the defense lawyer to report. If the defense lawyer is basically not updating their report and is telling the adjuster, hey, I've got nothing to report, nothing's happening, that's not a great sign for the plaintiff, uh, at least in terms of settlement value. Doesn't mean that you're not going to get a great verdict someday when you pull it all together, but you want to be doing some things to make them work because that does a couple things. It shows the adjuster that you're you're really into this case and you're making things happen. The only exception is discovery is closed, motions for summary judgment are pending. So there's not much you really can do and you're just waiting for rulings on summary judgment motions. I mean, that's a different situation. But if you're in the discovery period of the case, things should be happening on your end. And so they also see this as a cost for them because remember this adjuster is not only managing the risk they're in terms of what they pay to the plaintiff eventually, or what they might have to pay. They're also managing the cost of the case. And that's something that they have to answer for. So if you're really racking up the cost of the case by making defense lawyers work and taking a lot of depots and you have a lot of experts that they need to respond to, then they value the case differently because they see this as a higher exposure case in the gross. So just remember that what the adjuster is evaluating is not just exposure to plaintiff, it's also the cost of the case. So um, adjusters usually aren't super intimidated by demands that you settle for cost of defense, whatever, because they say, look, this is the cost of our doing business. But realize that if it is a very expensive case, there is a point at which I think that that comes into play. Yeah, I also think, you know, when defense counsels yes. like fighting, fighting, fighting over stupid things and they keep losing and, and, uh, not only are they racking up a huge bill, but then they have to report bad news after every hearing. I think that that has helped us in the past get them. It's demoralizing for the defendant, but. Yeah. I also <laughs> think it, it, it gets them to trust the defense counsel and their evaluation a little less because they're they're telling them, hey, let pay me money to do X, Y, and Z. And then mm -hmm. X, Y, and Z is not bearing any fruit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when I was a defense lawyer, I did not engage to the extent I possible. I did not engage in battle when it wasn't required. So if there was a motion to compel issue, we tried to work things out. It saved the insurance client money. They appreciated it. It was less harassment for our actual, you know, our actual client, the defendant. And it gave us more credibility across the board, but not, not every firm is set up that way. There are firms and lawyers out there who just want to fight every single battle. And they don't realize that actually in the in the long term, the judge starts looking at you funny every time you, he sees you or she sees you because you haven't said anything that's really convinced them so far that you're doing things reasonably. Yeah, I had a I remember I had a defense discussion about five, six years ago with a defense lawyer and we were just fighting, fighting, fighting over things. And he's like, you know, you ought to just start selling with me because we're fighting all the stuff and I'm getting paid by the hour and you're not and you're doing all this extra work. And I said, dude, if you keep billing them all this money and I keep kicking your ass sooner or later, they're going to get tired of it and you're going to lose the whole client. I mean, I, I at most, I'm going to lose one case. So I'm going to make up the next one. You're going to lose a client. That's going to be one of your big clients. Yeah. And, oh no, they love me. They'll never do that. And three years later, guess what? They got that firm got fired by that insurance company. It was a huge hit to their bottom line mm -hmm. because it's hard to keep relationships with adjusters send you a bunch of cases. You can only handle so much. And so when you lose yeah. one of your main clients, especially one that was letting you build the hell out of them, that's a huge blow to the, that lawyer and that firm. And you know, you realize too that management changes within the insurance companies. And so while there might be a great referral relationship between 
you know, the head adjuster who's running claims and, and that one star defense lawyer, that can change over time. And relationships break down. So yeah, I, I do think if for, for any defense lawyers out there, it is very short-sighted to fight every battle if you don't have a good faith basis to do so. It really just backfires on you, both in terms of your client relationship and your uh, relationship with judges. And then, you know, that can actually hurt you at trial. So even though the, the short-term money might be great, the long-term consequences to your reputation and, and to your effectiveness in general is, is not good. So, What are some things that you, when you're on their side, saw plaintiff's counsel do that ended up, in, in your opinion, having them leave money on the table, How, ended up settling cases for less than they're worth, getting lower offers than they could have had otherwise? Well, one is plaintiff's lawyers who don't typically handle this kind of case, they get their one big case, they litigate it, and they go to mediation and they do not have a sense of either what they could have done in discovery to make their case scarier to the defendant and more effective with a jury, or they don't know how to value the case because they've never had a case like this. And so they might think, I mean, I had one case where I won't give too many specifics, but I was prepared. I had recommended in that situation, I had a discussion with the adjuster about ranges informally. And we were looking at this case as a 10, 20, $30 million or more case. Terrible facts. Very sympathetic plaintiff. The, the, the plaintiff's lawyer came to the mediation and they jumped at a couple million dollar settlement. You know, we, once we got to a million, they're like, oh, I can retire now. And I said, this is not, uh, we were happy to settle for the number that we finally settled at, which was in the low seven figures. But I really felt bad for both that attorney and for the clients because they did not know. And what they could have done, and this is what I recommend, is start talking to lawyers who handle big cases. If you get your first big case, you want to make friends with lawyers who are out there who've handled a lot of big cases. Call Michael Cowan. Call any any one of us in ATAA. Call, call people who do the bigger cases and just brainstorm with them or co-counsel with them and bring them in. Because you know what? If somebody had, if this one lawyer had co-counseled with somebody who is an effective and experienced big case lawyer, they probably would have gotten tens of millions of dollars. And even if they paid him a 50% referral fee to co-counsel, everybody would have done better, especially the client. Right. Yeah. And I've had that happen a lot where we've, you know, we've settled cases for significantly higher than the demand uh, that was on the table mm -hmm. uh, when we got in. But at the same time, I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, they, they it's their one big case and, they, and they, they're worried someone's just going to come in and then sell it for about what they could have gotten and take half their fee and they're going to be worse off. Mm -hmm. But I, I will tell you that most of us will talk to you and brainstorm with you. We, we like doing it. Actually, I love brainstorming cases without having to do any of the work or having any of the responsibility. I love it too. It's, uh, it's fun for me. Yeah. And so most of us will talk to you even even if you don't want to bring us in on the case. That's fine. You know, just be upfront about mm -hmm. it. You know, what I what I don't like is when someone calls intimating that they want to bring me in on the case and I get all excited and then they and then just want free information. That bothers me. Yeah. But if you just say, look, I just want to brainstorm with you, I'll brainstorm with you. I don't mind. Now, I, it might not be... I think the one time, I mean, I made, uh, you know, I, I moved family plans around and spent 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. to talk to somebody, whereas if I knew we were just going to brainstorm, it probably would have been like a week later during office hours. That would that would be the difference. Uh, yeah. But that's okay. I mean, like I said, but I don't mind. Like I said, it's not the, 
the fact that I have to, I make plenty of money. I don't have to make money off your case. That's fine. I don't, I don't need that. If I share with you, the universe gives back to me. It doesn't bother me. And, and it's not just me. I mean, I, the, I was going to try a different kind of jury selection uh, in a case. It worked out really well, but I was, I I'd been trained on how to do it. I'd practiced how to do it, but I never did it in a real courtroom within a real trial. And so, you know, Joe Freed got on the phone with me for 45 minutes and held my hand and talked me through it. You know, he didn't ask. Joe Freed is amazing. That yeah, way. he didn't ask for any money. You know, he just he just did it. I mean, and I can name Joe's just a really good friend. But I can name 100 other lawyers that mm-hmm. have done that for me and then I'll pay it for it, do it for them. So, you know, please, if you have a big case, you can call Dina, call me, call, you know, anyone that you've you've met or, you know, or just email somebody and reach out to and you'll be surprised. I mean, all they can do is say, no, it can't hurt. But how many people will sit down, have lunch, have a cup mm-hmm. of coffee? I know my partner Mallory is doing that today. Someone's got a trial. They, Frankly, they they sent us, they, they showed us the case saying, you want to help us try the case? And we said, no, we absolutely don't. <laughs> but, you know, we, we're more than happy to share everything we have. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's just not, a, it's not the right case for us. Uh, but, it, we, but we hope and wish them every success, you know, and, and mm-hmm. like I said, our time, our knowledge, our forms, our documents, anything we have, we share. And I know you're the same way. Yeah. In fact, I, I will look at people's 30B6 notices. I will look at discovery requests and give suggestions. I'll chat with them about, hey, let's prepare for mediation. This is what I think you should think about. I love brainstorming. Like you said, especially when it's not my yeah. case and I don't have to do all the work. Uh, I, I do. I will. I'm always happy because I also learn from these conversations, it, even though they might call me for my input, which is just wonderful if I can do anything to help. But uh, a lot of times I also learn. I'll ask a lot of questions. They'll say, oh, yeah, we did this and this. We got this from a depot. And I'll think, oh, OK, that sounds great. Yeah. So, Dina, what kind of work are you doing now? So I uh, switched to the plaintiff side in 2019. Probably the best decision I've ever made in my life. I'm a much happier person and fulfilled person in every way. And now I do, I focus on uh, trucking cases and we do employment cases too. We do some, some employment, not as much as we did, but I'm really focusing on wrongful death, catastrophic injury, and I love trucking. So I've been doing as much as I can to really, um, you know, expand my knowledge and expertise in trucking because that's what we did a lot on the excess side. And that's what I love the most. So and if someone wants to find you, either because they just want to talk to you and, and brainstorm with you or because they have that big trucking case and they want to work with you on it, how, how can people find you in the world? We'll put this in the show notes, too. But since a lot of people just listen in the car or while they're running, I want to have it out there. You can look at my website, which is BuchananLawNM.com. But my email is Dina at DBuchananLaw.com. That's a great way to reach me. And it's B-U-C-H-A-N-A-N law.com. And then you can also give me a call. So uh, 505-900-3559 is our main number. And um, I do love chatting with people. And you can also reach out to me through LinkedIn or Facebook. We've got presence there. And sometimes people message me through those. Great. Well, it was great talking to you today. I look forward to the next time uh, we see each other. I'm sure it will be soon at our next ATAA or AAJ event and are just yeah. probably just need to call you next time. I'm not working. So some there every month. Yeah. Just we'll have lunch. I can take you somewhere and we'll have a, a healthy lunch since I know we're both working on fitness and I love Absolutely. to see how much you're running and everything these days. It's awesome, Michael. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I'm going to be able to get back to running uh, this Friday. I had to, you know, I had some of the 
people may have heard, some may not. I had a little a little fall uh, when I was speaking in Las Vegas, but luckily everything checked out. My brain's working, my heart's working, and the getting back. I'm walking now. I'm be back to running this week, and so you know, a little scary, but thank God everything's okay. It was just one of those things that happens sometimes. Uh, sometimes you just need to learn. It's it's good to take a break and and do things in moderation. So, yeah, I'm not very uh, good at moderation. <laughs> me neither. I'm working. It's a daily lesson, but I'm glad to see that you're out at it. So yeah, come have lunch with me in Albuquerque next time you're here. All right. Sounds great. All right. Take care, guys. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive plaintiff lawyer-only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us by calling 210-941-1301 to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our host, guest, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.